You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cool. So let's jump into uh, John chapter 14. This is a continuation of Jesus' farewell discourse, and that really much of what we've seen thus far in John um, is kind of specific events in Jesus' life that are being recorded, right? Whether uh, they're miraculous works that he has done or whether they are um, strange things that he has said. But this is an intimate moment between Jesus and the disciples where Jesus is about to be arrested and he's essentially telling them all that he wants them to know before he will be separated from them. Right? And we see this um, in, in verse uh, 36 of chapter 13 where it tells us that Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And so when we get to chapter 14, verse 1, and we find out that the the hearts of the disciples are troubled, we know why, right? Like for all the slack that the disciples sort of receive for being kind of thick throughout most of the, the gospel accounts, right? This is a moment in which I think we could, we could empathize in that here's a man that they have abandoned family and jobs for and homes who is now looking at them in the face and saying, I'm going a place where you can't come yet. And so their hearts are troubled and this is Jesus speaking to them in hopes of comforting them, right? So this is Jesus' comfort to His disciples, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus' comfort to His disciples who are troubled is to tell them that He is going to prepare a place for them that is characterized essentially by this word house or, or, or home. And that this home belongs to His Father and that in this home there are many rooms in which they are being invited to dwell. And that this place, that Jesus is going to prepare, this place that is, that is characterized by that word home is the place where they will dwell with Him in the days to come. And He assures them in verse 4 by saying, and you know, you know the way to where I am going. And so the question is, why would Jesus use this metaphor of a house and a home to comfort His troubled disciples in, in this time, right? What is it about this that would be comforting to the disciples? Well, I think that um, we can we can bridge that gap between us and the disciples by just understanding that that the that what Jesus is speaking to in them is something that we also very much experience together. And and let me explain what I mean. For many of us in the room this morning, home, right? Home is a real place. For some of us, maybe it's an address or a, or a particular location that we can point to and say, that is where home is. And for many of us, that place is accessible 
And generally speaking, it's probably a place in which we find comfort, right? That's why when we go home for the holidays, right, it's, it's going home. It's why when, when things that are difficult that happen to us, happen to us, we want to go where? Home. We see this reflected in the movies all the time, right? In that there might be a protagonist that has some, some sort of crises, right? And he or she has to return home to sort it out in the comfort of that place where they are accepted, where they are known. But here's the, the other side of that coin in that there, there's people whose, whose experience of home has been sort of that, much more nurturing, much more comforting. And yet for some of us in the room this morning, the word home is a word that conjures up feelings, not of, not of comfort, not of safety, but instead of sadness and disillusionment because home was never what it was meant to be for us. And this is also reflected regularly in movies, right? When there's a pro- protagonist who is confronted with a problem and in order to overcome it, they have to leave or escape the, their current home so that they can move on to a, a new home or a better home. A home that is more like home. And what's interesting to note is that in both of those scenarios, this idea of a home, either the one being returned to or the one being sought out, is really quite simply the place where they find unconditional acceptance. That that's what makes a good home, a good home, and that when that is absent, that's what makes a bad home a bad home, right? And I know that this is simplifying it somewhat, but essentially what, I, what I'm trying to say is that in both of those scenarios, whether you had a great home, that is directly related to the measure of which you felt comfort, accepted, right? And and if you had a bad home, the, the, the negative side of that experience is directly related to, to, to sort of the level at which you were rejected in that place. And so our experience of home is tied to that reality. A real home, a true home, what we all hope, what we all wish home was like, is a place where there is real peace, real rest, real joy, and hope of a better tomorrow. For many of us, right, these these movies aren't just stories. They're our lives. We're all looking for this place to call home. We're all looking for this place in which we are unconditionally accepted, where we can be who we are with no pretense. So Jesus' promise of a home speaks gloriously not just to the needs of the disciples here, but to our needs this morning, and that Jesus is making a very bold statement. He's saying that no matter which which experience was ours, the, the, the sort of the sort of shadow of, of a good home or or the entire lack of a good home. What Jesus is saying here is that there is a true home and a home that that we can only come to by one way. He's saying if if your experience of home here um, was positive that it's only a shadow of this glorious place that he's going to prepare, and if and if your ho- your experience of home here was negative, that that all of that will be erased and replaced with a home that is that is truly.
Leah Holmes. And so, Jesus invites the disciples home, not just to visit, but to dwell there, to live in that place, for that to be their ongoing reality. This place is characterized by acceptance. Now, that should, I think, for most of us, if, if, if we've come to sort of a, a, a common understanding of what home is and what makes home home, right? This place should sound appealing to us. It should lead us to ask the same question that Thomas asks when he says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so what Jesus is saying is that there is this place that is home, that, that whether we've experienced a shadow of it or whether we've not experienced any of it, that there is a place that is that way. There is a place in which we can be accepted, in which we can, we can rest in peace of, of being fully known and yet fully loved. And that the only way to get there is through Him. That, that if we want to come to this new and better and more real and more glorious home, there is one way by which we do so, and that is through Jesus. So what does that mean? right? Like if there is, if there really is this glorious home, this glorious place of acceptance, we can be fully loved, fully known, fully known and fully loved. And the way is through Jesus. What, like, what, does, that, what does that mean? What is it that Jesus is saying? Well, Let's just break it down, right? This home, this place that is characterized by this, this, this unconditional acceptance, this love, this peace, this joy, is in the Father's presence. It's in the presence of the Father. It's His home. That is where true home is. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, He's saying that it's through Him and through what He is about to go and do that He will create a way for us to come to that place. When he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's not saying, I'm going to like finish the West Wing so that you can live over there. Right? No, like it, the Father's house is there. The Father's house has many rooms. What Jesus is preparing is the way so that we can make it to those rooms, so that we can make it to that place, so that we can experience home. And so, that, so how is it that Jesus prepares the way? How is it that Jesus enables us to make our way? How is it that Jesus faithfully can say to Thomas that you know the way? Even though Thomas immediately responds, I don't know the way. <laughs> well, it's because he himself, it's because in knowing Jesus, we know the way. How is it that Jesus takes us to the Father? Well, first of all, we need to know what keeps us from the Father, right? If home is in the presence of the Father, if that's the only place that we will experience this, this being fully known and at the same time being fully loved, if that's only in His presence, how is it that Jesus actually gets us to that place? Well, first we have to know what it is that keeps us from that place, right? What keeps us from the Father is our sin, right? 
It's our sin. It's the sin initially of Adam, now of our own, that has broken fellowship with God, right? Genesis, being more about who than about how, right? Tells us that God created our first home and that when He created our first home, it was a home. It was not broken. It was perfect. But it also tells us that our sin, that the sin of our forefathers, brought it crashing down. That the unlimited acceptance that we were always meant to experience in Eden was no longer available to us because of our unacceptable behavior. Our desire to usurp a throne that was never meant to be ours and to reign in a way that we were never meant to reign creates a chasm between us and the Father. So here's the thing, right? I think we've all heard this before, right? Maybe we've read a gospel tract that somebody left on our windshield and this is one side of the canyon that you are on, right? And this is the side of the canyon that Jesus is on. And unless you've watched Indiana Jones and you throw the little salt out, like, there's no way, right? There's no invisible bridge. How are you going to get there? Right? That, that gap, that chasm is your sin. We've all seen that. We all understand that. But so here's, here's the thing, right? If sin, is the, if sin is the only barrier, if sin is that barrier for us, keeping us from the Father, shouldn't the remedy be fairly simple? Right? Shouldn't the remedy be fairly simple? Like, remove the sin. Like, those things that you were doing, do not do those things. Easy as that. So what do we need Jesus for? Well, um, if you've sat under um, the gospel preaching for any amount of time, you know that that's absurd, right? And if you've lived for any amount of time, Underneath the gracious reign and rule of Jesus, you know that that's absurd. Because here's the sad truth. Many of us either have tried or are currently trying through a rigid moralism and religion right, to bridge the gap between us and the Father. Right? We, we muster up sort of this list of accomplishments, these things that we've done, these reasons that we believe that we should be acceptable to God. And all of the Old Testament, all of those uncomfortable <laughs> portions that we don't like reading, right, are essentially a catalog of people knowing what they should do, right? The law given to them, hey, you want to be the people of God? You want to be restored to God? Here's what you do. Here's a bunch of laws. Here's how you behave. Here's how, like, these are the sacrifices you make to atone for your, right? All of those things. They were given the, the, the whole manual. And over and over and over again, they blow it. And our lives are exactly the same in that we know. And over and over and over again, we blow it. And here's the, and here's the thing. Right? Even if we could, even if we could follow the law to the letter, every T crossed, every I dotted in perfection from this moment until the day that we die, we would still have the problem of what about what we've already done? Right? Like that would still be an issue. And not, and not even just what we've already done, but that if we've done one thing 
to, to, to go against the law of God, he tells us that we've actually broken all of them, right? So if we only break one little law, we've broken all of them. But what do we do about that? What Jesus is telling us and what we can understand from, from this text is that home is out there. There's a place where we experience full, full knowledge of who we are and yet full love unrestrained by virtue of who we are. We're just hopeless to get there on our own. As Lord of the Rings would say, the way is shut. And so how does Jesus remove that barrier? Right? If that's a barrier that we can't get over on our own, how does Jesus remove that barrier? Well, Jesus is about to clue us in. Remember, this is right before Jesus is arrested. And in that moment, right, so this is right, like probably on the way to Gethsemane to pray. And in the different accounts of this story, we, we hear Jesus use two phrases, right? So in Matthew, Jesus is praying to God the Father. He's anxious, right? He's, he's torn up. He's, he's crying. He's sweating drops of blood. And what he, what he asks of the Father is this, Lord, if it could be possible, would you remove this cup from me? And in John, right, he says to Peter, as he's being arrested, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So what is this cup, right? What is this cup that produces such anxiety in Jesus? What is this cup that Jesus must go on to drink that is integral to his life and to his purpose in being and coming and taking upon himself flesh? Well, that cup, that cup is the full cup of God's wrath, His just anger towards our sin. It's that punishment that He is going to bear. It is that cup of wrath that Jesus is going to drink on our behalf. And in so doing, He makes the way, He removes the barrier of sin because God's just punishment for that has been meted out not on you, but on Him. And so in this context, and with that reality in mind, we can understand the reasoning by Jesus' famously exclusive statement when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Right? Like This is a common sort of issue that, that, that people have with the Bible and with Jesus and His claims to to be the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father, the only way to experience home. Right? And that many of us sort of in, in maybe in an honest attempt to, to sort of uh, build bridges between one another, we say, oh, well, you know, it's all just one mountain. We're all taking different trails up to the top, but it's the same destination. Jesus repudiates that line of thinking. He says, no, nobody gets to where that place is apart from me. What is it that gives Jesus the right to say that? Well, if home is in the Father's presence, and it's not a place that we can get to because of the barrier of our sin, and if Jesus has come to drink the full cup of God's wrath and just anger towards our sin on our behalf, 
Who else has the familial standing with the Father to ensure that we arrive at His home? Who else has lived so perfectly as to remove all that would make us unfit for the home of His Father? Of course Jesus has the right to say, no one comes to the Father except through Me. He didn't come down here on the off chance that some people might pick that way and that some might discover sort of some back road up into heaven. No, He came down because we were desperately in need. There was no other way and He came and made the way. And no one comes to Him. No one experiences this home, this place of being fully known and fully loved apart from the atoning, substitutionary death of the Son. So here's the truth this morning. Right? The truth is, and the truth that Jesus is telling us He is, is that we don't get to heaven and we won't get to heaven because we're generally good people or because we tried our best. The truth is that we get to heaven because Jesus is the only way. And true life is found in a place where we can rest. Right? We can't rest in our moralizing and we can't rest in our guilt when we fail at moralizing. There's no rest to be found in either one of those. Either you're succeeding and you're so worried about failing that you're always looking over your shoulder or you're failing and you're recognizing that there's failure. There's no rest there. There's no peace there. So life, true life, is found in resting in Jesus' finished work, His paving of the way for us to get back home. So when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, that's what He is inviting us into. That is what He is saying can only be found consummately and wholly in who He is. In who Jesus is as the very Son of God given for us. And then I think that we get to see a good picture of what this home, this place that Jesus invites us to through Him and through Him alone is like. And that this is what it says in verse 9. Jesus said to him, he's talking to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do not believe, or do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So what is this home like? Well, Jesus tells us that that he has a unique relationship with the Father. That he is so connected to the Father, that he is actually in the Father as the Father is in him. And so here's what, here's what the Bible goes on to tell us, whether it's in Ephesians, right? Which, I mean, just throughout that book, you'll see this phrase over and over again. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. And so necessarily, necessarily, if we are in Christ, then that means that as Jesus is in the Father, so we also are in the Father. And you know what that is? That's pure, unadulterated, total intimacy. In that we, right? 
we are in Christ, and then, then that means we are also in the Father. And here's the thing, we, we don't become in Christ by hiding away our sins and pushing up our good stuff and saying, okay, God, acceptable or no? Right? We get to it through the good work of Jesus. So here's the thing, God looks at us and He sees everything. Right? Like every, like I know all of us have that one, even if it's just a little, small, tiny little crevice of who we are that we've not shared with anyone. Because we're ashamed, because we're guilty, because we're fearful about what that will do to the level of our acceptance, whether it's among our family, or among our peers, or wherever it is that we're looking for acceptance. And yet, and yet, Father and the Son. They see that. You are fully known. God is omniscient. He knows all things. That's part of His character. That's part of His attributes. That's what makes Him God. He knows you. He fully knows you. And yet, because Jesus has made a way, He also fully loves you with no reservation. In that there is nothing in you, there is no moral failure in you that is now a barrier or an obstacle to God's love being poured out out to you because his wrath has already been poured out on Jesus. Jesus drank every last drop of God's wrath and just anger for us. So we're not only fully known by his omniscience, we're fully loved by his work. And isn't that really what all of us want? To be fully known and to be fully loved in spite of all of the mess and kind of the the wreckage that we find in our lives. That we would be fully known, that we could share that, that someone could bear our burdens with us and at the same time love us apart from all all of that difficulty. Isn't that what we're looking for when we're looking for boyfriends or girlfriends or for spouses or from our fathers and from our mothers, right? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that the safety we crave? Isn't that what all of our ongoing accomplishments are meant to try and secure? That if we have this thing, if we own this much, if we live this kind of life, then then we'll gain more and more acceptance and we'll have more and more sort of um, strength to deal with the fact that there are these areas that we can't really navigate or negotiate on our own. And Jesus says, look, drop all that. I am the way, the truth, the life. You come to the Father through me, and I am in the Father as the Father is in me, and I am inviting you to come and dwell with us and to find rest and to find peace here apart from your inability to be be as moral as you need to be because I've already been moral for you. And here's what I've always found interesting is that you know there's a leveraging of um, there's a leveraging of accusation essentially against uh, Jesus, which is that he is exclusive, right? Because he says no one comes to the Father except through me, he's exclusive, and I don't want to hang out with people who are exclusive. And yet here's the thing: while Jesus is what's true about Jesus is exclusive, and that it is not up for negotiation. In, in that there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Him, is enveloped in an invitation that is altogether inclusive, in that the word that we see here is whoever. Right? Whoever. And so here's the thing. Again, 
I think a, a lot of sort of modern American cultural Christianity is, well, as long as I get these things right, then I can finally start showing up to church, and then I'll finally start figuring out how to be pleasing to God. And yet, what we are seeing here is that although the truth about Jesus is exclusive, there's no other way. His invitation is inclusive. So that means that no matter where you stand on a moral high ground or a moral low ground, there is enough grace for you to make up the difference between you and God and that we now all stand on level ground by virtue of the work of Jesus. And so who's invited to experience home? Whoever. Whoever. Whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me, right? Verse 12 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So when we arrive at that verse in context, it makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? And that here, here's essentially what happens, right? Three things happen when we accept Jesus' invitation to come home through Him. When we believe that He is the Son of God, this is what life in Jesus' name looks like. First, first, we are able to live in the difficulty, complexity, injustice, ambiguity, and imperfection of this home, knowing that our second home, our true home, is coming. This is the hope that the book of Hebrews tells us is like an anchor for the soul. Knowing that, that there's an eternal home and that there's a home that is complete in all the ways that our homes were incomplete. And then second, we're able to love even those who despise us because we no longer have a void of love to be filled. Instead, we have an abundance of love to be shared. And then third and final. It changes the way we pray. It changes the way we pray. Right? So when we read verse 14, and it says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is not Jesus offering to be our genie. It's Jesus offering to grant us what we most need. And that's home. It changes the way we pray in that we begin to pray less about us and more about what God is doing in the world and what He has called and empowered us by the Spirit to join Him to do. Right? What does it say in verse 12? I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. Now remember, right? These are the disciples of Jesus that have followed Jesus for the past three years and seen Him do miraculous things. Right? I mean, most of the time, they probably spent just like this. Did you see that? Can you believe that? And he's saying, he's saying, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. They will live like I live. They will walk in the boldness that I walk in. They'll walk in the humility that I walk in. They'll walk with the, with the security and assurance that I walk in, knowing that I'm of the Father. They will, Right? Now, does that characterize the disciples to you at all? No. Peter's about to deny Jesus three times, not just once, three times. 
And so what Jesus is, is inviting them to do and what Jesus is promising to do in verse 14 is to provide for us all that we need in order to be the people who do what Jesus does. So if we're struggling to be more like Jesus, Jesus says, ask for it in my name. And I will do it. Are you struggling for courage to tell others about Jesus? Ask for courage in Jesus' name in order to do what Jesus does. Are you struggling to be generous with all that you have like Jesus? Ask for it in Jesus' name. Are you struggling to suffer for the sake of those who could care less about you? Ask for it in Jesus' name. Are you struggling to be humble instead of boasting in your accomplishments? Ask for it in Jesus' name. And He will do it that the Father might be glorified in the Son through His people who He has now sent on His behalf. And so what if, what if by our prayers and by the Spirit's help in doing what Jesus does, Houston and Montreux began to look a little bit more like home? What if Montreux began to look a little more like home, where the love of God through the people of God is poured out as they are empowered through their prayers, to do what Jesus does, that as we ask Him for anything that would glorify the Father through the work of the Son, that He actually does those things through us, and that our neighborhood begins to look a little bit more like a place where people can come and experience being fully known and fully loved in Christ. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do that. Father, we thank You for uh, this time.